All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome. If it's your first time here again, just want to welcome you to Citizens. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the church. Um, want, want to give a couple, uh, two more uh, quick things. Um, actually, while I was worshiping this morning, uh, I actually realized that today marks exactly uh, two years since we launched here at Roybal as Citizens. Um, I'm not really a big on anniversaries and dates and things like that, but uh, I, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge that, and, and partly because I want to honor really our staff and our incredible team of volunteers who have done so much these past two years uh, to, you know, God has really used them to sustain this community. Um, I can tell you that uh, navigating a global pandemic four months after you open in a new location is not an easy task. So can, can, can we just take a moment and give a round of applause to our volunteers and our staff? Um, we're so thankful for uh, all of you. Uh, second thing I want to mention is last week, uh, at the end of service, we took a special offering uh, for uh, one of our old uh, Renewal Lay students, Noemi Mora. Uh, many of you know she was a part of uh, multiple Renewal Lay cohorts at our church. Uh, her mom, who was a single mother, uh, recently passed away from cancer. And so uh, we took a special offering. I, I just want to say how proud I am of, of our community for your continued generosity. Every time the opportunity comes, uh, the way you give so generously and selflessly, and we were able to raise, even on just that one Sunday, close to $5,000, uh, which we've been able to donate in full uh, to help with uh, costs for the funeral, for burial, um, as well as just living expenses for the family. And so thank you guys so much. Uh, for your generosity, and, and more than anything, we just want to continue to be a church, uh, co always cognizant of the needs of our city, uh, the needs of our neighbors, and, and in any way we can when the opportunity arises to be able to support uh, and to love on them the best that we can. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to get into God's Word today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Mark, we're looking at uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. If you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark 14, 1 to 11. This is the reading of God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, this is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. 
and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are nearing the end of our series through the book of Mark, and um, you know we've kind of had to zoom through this book, and I, I wish uh, we could have gone through the entire book, and at some point I do want to go through uh, the entire book of Mark uh, from beginning to end. Uh, but I hope that uh, at the very least, you know, through these sermons over the past couple of months, through the inductive Bible studies that you've been doing with your community group, uh, that in some way, shape, or form, uh, it's forced you to examine your own hearts and ask yourselves some hard questions about the Jesus you've inherited or the Jesus you've constructed in your minds. And I hope it's forced you to ask yourself whether or not Jesus is truly who you think he is. You know, I, I hope that as a church, we've been confronted together, like the disciples throughout this book, uh, confronted with our idolatry of success, money, family, politics, and the ways that we've used Jesus as a tool to further our own agendas, the ways that we've used Jesus uh, as a means to an end rather than an end in and of himself. And we find ourselves today in Mark 14. And if you've been following along with us, you know that uh, the gospel of Mark kind of moves at lightning speed, okay? Everything is super fast and furious. Uh, Mark 1, Jesus comes on the scene. He announces the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the inbreaking of this long-awaited kingdom. And then he just starts doing stuff one after the other. He goes to one place, heals some people, goes to another place, casts out demons. He gets on a boat, calms a storm. He feeds the 5,000. And it's meant to give us this sense that something big is happening. Something big is about to happen. And, and Jesus is basically creating these small pockets of the kingdom of God everywhere he goes. He's giving us an idea of what on earth as it is in heaven looks like. It looks like people uh, who've been marginalized and oppressed, who've been deemed unclean by their communities being restored to wholeness. It looks like the hungry being fed. It looks like radical compassion, empathy, and justice. And it's moving and moving, and the momentum is growing and growing, and makes us feel like we're moving toward this grand climax. But then here, near the end of the book, you'll notice that the, that the gospel suddenly slows way down. And I think it's Mark doing this on purpose to get us to, to come in close and start to pay attention to the end of Jesus' life. And in the same way that Jesus is never who we want or expect him to be, the way the story ends is not what we expect it to be. Now, this section, uh, to get a little bit technical, uh, I know it's Sunday morning, but you got an extra hour of sleep today, hopefully, and so um, a little bit technical here, but this section from verses 1 to 11, this is known as a Markin sandwich, okay, and this happens all throughout the Gospel of Mark, and it's basically when you get this kind of random narrative that gets inserted between two parts of the same story, okay, so you have verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11, which kind of make up the buns of the sandwich, and then you have verses 3 to 9, which tells this story about this uh, woman that basically is the meat, okay? And, and you could technically read 1, 2, 10, and 11, and the story would make perfect sense, but this is kind of a literary technique Mark uses to get us to pay attention to that middle section, okay? And so we're told in verses 1 and 2 that it's two days before Passover. Uh, you know that for the Israelites, Passover was a sacred holiday, it's a day that commemorates their liberation from almost 400 years of slavery in Egypt. If you remember the story, 
on the eve of the Exodus, uh, God calls Moses. He says, look, I want you to go get some lambs, kill the lambs, have my people uh, put the blood of the lambs on the doorposts. And, you know, when I bring destruction and when I bring judgment on Israel's oppressors, I will literally pass over those families. I'll know who my people are and I'll literally pass over those families and spare them. Okay? And so this is kind of the story that uh, is the backdrop of verses 3 to 9. And the reason why this is important is that keep in mind that throughout the Gospel of Mark, every week I've been saying, it's often the people who think they know Jesus who have no idea who he really is. It's the people who think they get it, okay, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, sometimes even Jesus' own disciples, who actually have no idea who Jesus really is, and often they oppose him. And this is what we're seeing here. And so in verses 1 and 2, you have the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, you have one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot, plotting to betray Jesus. And then right in the middle, inserted in here, you get this story of this unnamed woman who's the only one who gets it. She's the only one. You, you, you have to think, right? If there's anyone who understands what Passover is about, it's the chief priests, it's the scribes, it's Jesus' disciples. And yet here in verses 3 to 9, the only person who gets it is this unnamed woman. This unnamed woman realizes that this Passover season is not just any Passover season. This Passover season is different because the Passover lamb is sitting at the table. I want you to think about that. Nobody understands that the Passover lamb is actually sitting at the table. This lamb in just a few days is going to be slain for the sins not only for the Israelites, but to liberate the entire world from the slavery of sin and death. And this is why Jesus says, this woman has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Everyone else in this story wants me dead, and they're doing everything they can to kill me. This woman is the only one who realizes that I came here to die, and she's preparing my body for burial. Because I want us to kind of visualize this scene for a moment, okay? You have Jesus at this dinner party at Simon the leper's place, okay? And even that small detail, the fact that he's at Simon the leper's place, a former leper, tells you everything you need to know about who Jesus is and where his priorities are. This is a few days before he dies, okay? You have a few days left on earth, and he chooses to have dinner with a former leper, okay? And at this dinner party, in comes this woman with this alabaster flask of pure nard, we read that the perfume in this jar is worth over 300 denarii. To give you some context, in our, uh, in our context, that would be about $100,000 um, in U.S. currency today, okay? And this, was, this would have been about a year's worth of a skilled person's wages back in that time, okay? So it's a lot of money. And not only is that an exorbitant amount of money, you have to understand that for a woman in that time, for a woman who could not be educated, who couldn't own property, who basically had no rights, nothing to their name, who was basically at the bottom of the social hierarchy. This isn't just money. This is everything she has. This is her emergency fund. 
Okay, this is her get-out-of-jail-free card in case something horrible happens. They used to basically pass these alabaster flasks down from generation to generation to their daughters because they knew it was difficult to be a woman in that world. And so you have to understand, for this, this, this person to just come in and break this alabaster flask of oil and start putting it on Jesus' head, this is the unthinkable. This is her life savings. This is her retirement, gone in an instant. Now, you have to imagine the horror on people's faces as they're watching this scene unfold. And, you know, we, you know, we often read the Bible, and we've been given this story in a very sentimentalized way, where it's this beautiful picture of this woman's love and faith and devotion. If you were in that room, this would have been an awkward scene. Okay, this is an awkward situation. Like, uh, you know, you have to ima like, imagine I go spend my entire life savings on a car. I go to a dinner party, and I'm like, I love you, Jesus, and I smash that car into a wall. Okay, everyone would be like, what are you smoking, Jason, right? What are you thinking? Like, what good does that possibly do? And this is what everyone in that room is thinking. What is this woman doing? This doesn't make any sense. And immediately, everyone has something to say about it, right? They're like, could have done something more. What a waste. You could have sold that and gave it to the poor. You could have been more wise with your resources, right? What, what, are they, what is this woman doing? What a waste of a good thing. What a waste of a great opportunity. And I think you and I, we would like to think that we're, unlike, we're, we're like this woman in the story. No. We're a lot more like these spectators, aren't we? Everyone has something to say. We always have something to say. You know, uh, there's a, an intersection in downtown LA I, I pass by on my commute every morning. Same guy holding a sign that says, Jesus loves you. Every time I walk into an H Mart, there's a, the same church group singing praise songs out there. Every time I see that church group, I'm like, why? Does that do anything? You know, I, like, I, I wish someone would do a study. How many people in the history of Christianity have ever come to faith because they saw a church group singing praise songs outside of H Mart? I bet not that many. And I still stick by it. I have very good reasons as to why that's ridiculous. You know, I think it makes Christians look weird, I think it's a bad witness. You know, I think they could be a lot more productive with their time and energy. Honestly, I feel like they should be more like Jesus and be more productive and build relationships and really get in people's lives. I agree with all that, and I have great reasons. But when I really examine my heart, what I'm really thinking is, this is just a way for me to justify my own self-righteousness. At the end of the day, when I make those comments, I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm trying to find a way to justify my inaction and my indifference. And this is what we see here. These men had legitimate reasons for criticizing this woman. They said, you could have used this money to serve the poor. You know, 300 denarii, you could have fed a small village with that money. What are you doing? And in some sense, they were right. But do you think they really cared about the poor? And this is why Jesus here... This is why he says, um, 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. That phrase always confused me. I was like, what is Jesus saying here? It makes Jesus look self-centered. It makes it look like he doesn't care about the poor. But when you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus loves the poor. In fact, he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what is he saying here when he says you're always going to have the poor with you? He's saying the very same reason that you're condemning this woman is the very same reason you will always have the poor with you. Because at the end of the day, you don't even care about the poor. He says, if you loved me the way you think you love me, if you loved me the way this woman loves me, then honestly, you would have already sold your possessions and given it to the poor. Poverty wouldn't exist, but you're not going to do that, are you? Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing their self-righteousness. And I think this speaks to our cultural moment right now. You know, these days it feels like everyone has something to say about everything, right? Um, you know, everyone's a social media activist. Everyone's an armchair expert. Everyone wants to make it their life mission to call out everyone else and tell everyone else why their devotion to a cause or why their acts of service are tainted or aren't good enough. Uh, we're going to put up a picture here. Many of you may remember the story of John Allen Chow back in 2018. Okay? He's now seen as kind of a stain on evangelicals in, here in the U.S., but he was a 26-year-old American blogger who basically traveled illegally to a remote island that was closed off for centuries. Okay? And he became famous because he made it his life's mission to basically convert the indigenous people on that island to Christianity. Well, he went there, and within a month, uh, he was killed by the tribe. Now, if this had been 50 years ago, uh, guarantee he would have been hailed as a martyr. Okay, but this is 2018. Living in a, we're living in different times. And the response was swift and fierce. Um, you know, people destroyed him in the media. People condemned him. They said, this is exactly what's wrong with Christianity. This is just Christianity masquerading as religious extremism. You know, they, talk, they were talking about tribal protections. They talked about all the health risks he posed by going to an island that had been closed off for centuries. He said, this is just Western colonialism all over again, imperialism all over again. And you know what? I agreed with all of it. In fact, I still do. In fact, I've preached many sermons from this pulpit using stories just like his to tell you all what never to do as Christians. And yet, you know what the saddest part about this story was? The sad irony was that, and, and don't do this right now, but later when you have time, I want you to go to Twitter and I want you to search the hashtag John Allen Chow and I want you to see what people have said about him. People, especially other Christians. The nastiness, the vitriol. And in some ways you realize what is being said about him is just as dehumanizing as the very thing he's being criticized for. This is the moment that we're living in. And whether or not you agree with what he did or not, I think so many times as Christians, we're just like these people 
who have so much to say about everything but aren't willing to put our money where our mouth is. How many times have we read a story like this, made a snide remark, got on Twitter, put down a quippy quote or something, and then went back to living our comfortable lives? Guess what? Brought to you on the backs of the very people you claim to protect. This is the moment we're living in. In this story, the things that were being said about this woman were right. But you can be right and still be wrong. Could this woman use her resources differently? Probably. Could she have maybe thought a little bit longer before breaking that alabaster flask open? Yeah. Could she have maybe weighed the pros and cons of her decision to make that kind of a sacrifice and been a little bit more intentional about it? Absolutely. But you have to understand, this woman isn't thinking about those things. She's not even thinking about being theologically correct. She's not even thinking about what she's, how she's going to be perceived by other people. She's not even thinking about the monetary value of the perfume she's holding. She's just like, what is there that I can give to the one to whom I owe my life? There's no calculation. There's no hesitation. There's no... How do I quantify this thing? No. She's just like, take it all. But you and I, we're very different, aren't we? We're always calculating. We're always tracking how much we give and how much we sacrifice. That's who we are. Husbands and wives, we're master calculators, okay? Husbands, we don't remember anything. We don't remember where we put our socks, we don't remember dates or anniversaries, but you know what we will always remember? How many times we did the dishes last week? How many times we put the kids down? You know why? Because we have an ongoing tally sheet in our minds and we're ready to pull that tally sheet out whenever the time comes. And the time always comes. We're master calculators. We quantify every gift that we're given and we make sure we give something comparable in return. Every time we buy a gift, we're like, okay, what did this person get me last year for my birthday? Uh, do I even like this person? Is this person an important person? Uh, they're being kind of mean to me. You just get a Starbucks gift card, $10, that's it, right? Everything is a transaction. Everything is on a tally sheet. We're calculating beings. But once in a while, you get a gift that can't be quantified and you don't know what to do with yourself. Once in a while, you get a gift that you're like, oh man, I, I don't even know what to do. And the response never makes sense because the gift never makes sense because you can't really put a price on that gift. It's, it's kind of like that, if you remember that famous, um, what is it? MasterCard ad campaign, right? Two World Series tickets, $1,000. Popcorn, drink, and hot dog, $50. Autographed jersey of your favorite player, $200. A real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things you can't put a price on, things that don't seem to make sense, make sense to us because you can't quantify the gift you receive. What is a child worth to their parents? You can't put a price on it. That's why parents do things that never make sense. 
Why do we spend so much money on first birthday parties that our kids will never remember? I did it. I don't know why I did it. They don't remember it. Why do we take our kids to Disneyland when they're two, three years old? Why do we spend $7 on a bottle of water? Why do we stand in the hot sun for hours only to have our kids the very next day say to us, you never do anything nice for us? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. You might even call it a waste. But why do we do it? Because you can't put a price on love. You can't put a price on your children. Have you ever experienced the forgiveness of someone you wronged so horribly, but they forgave you before you could forgive yourself? You don't even know what to do with yourself because you can't put a price on that kind of forgiveness. But isn't it funny that when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, we calculate everything. We know exactly how much we give. We know exactly how much time we sacrifice. We pay attention to every dollar, every ounce of energy we give. We track everything. Our faith isn't allowed to get in the way of our way of life. Our faith isn't allowed to disagree with our political affiliations. Our faith isn't allowed to inconvenience us. Everything has to make sense, and everything thus is calculated. And it makes you wonder if we truly realize the gift we've been given. Because if Jesus is really who he claims to be, then your life shouldn't make sense. People should look at your life and they should say, I wonder why they live the way they do. I wonder why they chose to live there when they could have afforded a house in a much nicer neighborhood. I wonder why they chose that career when I know they could have been making more money elsewhere. I wonder why they come early on a Sunday morning to set up these chairs. They must be paid, right? Because if they're not paid, it doesn't make sense. And yet Bible tells us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. What makes zero sense to the world makes perfect sense to the person who understands the gift they've received. And this is why Jesus says, leave her alone. When they have something to say, he's like, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And I love what he says in verse 8. He says, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. She doesn't even have much to give, but Jesus says she has done what she could. Know this. Today, you may feel like your offering is insignificant. You may feel like the time that you give is insignificant, is a drop in the bucket, is not doing much. But here, Jesus says, we do a beautiful thing to him when we simply give what we can with what we have. Maybe this morning you're here and you feel like you have nothing to give. Maybe your soul feels so tired and so exhausted and so burnt out. Maybe you feel like your faith is barely flickering. Maybe you feel like all you can muster is a simple prayer and that's okay. Because Jesus says, you do something beautiful for me when you give what you can with what you have. So let me ask all of you a question this morning. What is Jesus worth to you?
If you're here and you're not a believer, we're so glad you're here. Maybe your answer to that question is nothing, and that's okay. Maybe you're like, I've heard about Jesus. He's got some good teachings, but he's definitely not worth my life, and that's okay. But let me ask you, what is then worth your life? Because whether you are a believer or not, we all have something that we actually believe implicitly or explicitly is worth our lives. We all have something that will make us do things that don't make sense. You know, that word worship can also be understood worth-ship. It's giving your entire life and devotion to something that you believe is worth it. Is it success? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it a title? Whatever it may be, whatever that thing is, be it money, power, or popularity, let me ask you another question. What are you worth to it? Nothing. Money will have no problem watching you die and moving on to its next victim. Power will have no problem corrupting you and watching you die and moving on to its next victim. Jesus is the only God who will ever love you more than you love him. And he shows us that love by offering his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. On the cross, it wasn't an alabaster jar that was broken. It was the body of the perfect, spotless lamb, broken for you and for me. You want to talk about something that's a waste? You want to talk about something that doesn't make sense? The cross doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. How is it that the only sinless person that ever walked the earth would willingly choose to die a criminal's death? It doesn't make sense. This is why when people looked at the cross, they said, what a waste. They said, we watched this guy do the most unthinkable things. He had so much power. He had so much potential. What a waste of a life. So why did he do it? He did it for love. And you can't put a price on love. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. And when you understand how loved you are, then you can understand why this woman does what she does. You can understand why there's no calculation, there's no hesitation, why her life and her offering doesn't make sense. She's not thinking about what she might be wasting. She's like, what do I have? What could I possibly give to compare to what I've received in Christ Jesus? What is 300 denarii to me when I have inherited eternal life? What is 300 denarii to me when the creator of the cosmos is willing to lay down his life for me? You know, many of you know um, my mom is currently battling breast cancer. She's been battling for the past year. Um, and she is, uh, by God's grace, she's surviving and fighting hard. 
And you guys also know that it's been kind of a crazy season for my family, but it's been particularly heavy for my mom. And uh, about two weeks ago, uh, on Monday morning, she got a call from Korea letting her know that her older sister had passed away unexpectedly. Um, and, you know, it, we were just like, why, why, God, are you doing this right now? And then just this past Monday, she got another call letting her know that her younger sister, who was serving as a missionary in Indonesia, had also passed away from cancer. As if battling breast cancer isn't hard enough, in the past two weeks, she's lost both of her sisters, the only two sisters she has. Uh, so you can imagine uh, the kind of stress and pain she's under. Um, but this past Wednesday, uh, I was asked to give a, a virtual eulogy for my aunt, for my mom's younger sister, on Zoom, uh, because, you know, uh, COVID restrictions, uh, they wouldn't let anyone into the country. And, um, you know, uh, I want to show you, I actually want to show you a picture of my aunt on the screen. And uh, my aunt never got married. She never had children. Uh, you know, she basically gave the best years of her life uh, to serving in this small, obscure village in Indonesia. And uh, even, after when she, even after she was diagnosed with cancer, you know, the missions organization that she was a part of, they pleaded with her, please come back, go get treatment in America, we'll pay for it, you know, you don't have to stay there. And even the pastor was telling us in the memorial service, your aunt is a stubborn woman because she wouldn't leave. And she refused. And she said, you know, if I leave, I know they're not going to let me back into this village. And I want to die with the people to whom God has sent me. And she's like, I'm not going. I'm going to die here. And honestly, that didn't make sense. In fact, her entire life didn't make sense to us. Even as a pastor, I didn't understand why she chose to live such a difficult life. Because like many of us in this room, my understanding of the good life is that you build a lucrative career, you get married, you have a family, you watch your kids grow up, you live a comfortable life, and then you die. That's my version of the good life. And she had none of it, which is why her life didn't make sense. Some would call it a waste. But sitting in that Zoom service, I can tell you, listening to person after person get up there, unmute, and talk about the profound impact my aunt had on their life, on their family, on that community, I realized her life wasn't a waste. Our lives are never a waste when we offer them in devotion to Jesus. I closed uh, my eulogy on Wednesday by saying that um, even though uh, my aunt's story would probably never be published in a Time magazine, or written about in a book, that to the countless lives she touched with her generosity, kindness, and empathy, 
she will never be forgotten. And I was thinking about verse 9. I was thinking about what Jesus says when he says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This woman had no idea that people all over the world for generations would hear the story of her breaking the alabaster jar and be saved. I'm sure my aunt never knew what would come of her story, but here we are in Los Angeles on the other side of the globe, thousands of miles of Indonesia, from Indonesia, and I hope that if my aunt is listening to this right now, I hope she knows that what she has done has been told in memory of her. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come humbly to you with so little to give. How could we possibly put a price on the perfect Son of God giving his own life for sinners like us? All the money and, and possessions in the world could not come close. Lord, I ask that for every heart in this room, I ask that the Spirit would plant the message of the gospel deep within our hearts, that this morning we would know just how loved we are, that we would realize the gift, the weightiness, and the precious sacrifice you've given us that our lives would not be a matter of doing more that our lives would not be an attempt to earn our salvation our lives would not feel like we're doing something extra for you that our lives would simply be the only fitting logical response for being redeemed for being saved for having access to you, for having access to your supernatural peace, joy. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. May it resonate deep within our hearts. May we not leave this place unchanged. May we not go back and just go back to our comfortable lives. May we see our entire lives as an offering to you. We pray for this community, that people will look at citizens and say, that church doesn't make sense. The things they do doesn't make sense. But that it would make perfect sense to us as people redeemed by your precious blood. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.